Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today we'll present an interview with Gerald Richardson, led by Mahmoud Ababni. My name is Shazia Hafiz Ramji, and I'm a researcher for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. In this interview, Jael Richardson talks about the beginnings of the Festival of Literary Diversity, popularly known as FOLD. She's frank about the challenges of decentering whiteness and the joy of prioritizing marginalized voices. Jael also discusses her books Gutter Child, The Stone Thrower, and The Hockey Jersey. She shares nuances of writing dystopia, the privileges of growing up middle class in Brampton, Ontario, of finding black community, and of a sequel to Gutter Child. Mahmoud Ababne is pursuing a PhD in English Literature at the University of Calgary on Treaty 7 territory. His research centres around trans-Indigenous and post-colonial literatures, decolonization, and settler colonialism. Mahmoud is currently teaching at Bow Valley College, and his work has appeared in the Journal of Holy Land and Palestine Studies. Jael Richardson is the author of The Stone Thrower and the founder and executive director for the Festival of Literary Diversity in Brampton, Ontario. Her debut dystopian novel, Gutter Child, was shortlisted for the Amazon First Novel Award, it was also a finalist for the White Pine Award, and won a Word Award. Her second picture book, Because You Are, was published in July 2022, and her newest book, The Hockey Jersey, was released earlier this year. Richardson holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Guelph and lives in Brampton, Ontario. We hope you enjoy this conversation between Jael Richardson and Mahmoud Abadli. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, Gile, and welcome to Calgary. Thank you for having me. It's beautiful outside, right? It is beautiful. I just landed after a very long layover, <laughs> or like <laughs> delay getting out, and there's lots of snow, so I feel very much at home here. It's snowing back home as well. Oh, okay. So it wasn't a like surprise. No, it was snowing last night, and then I flew here, and now it's snowing here. It feels very normal. <laughs> okay, so I was feeling bad. Just to <laughs> land here in Calgary, and it's like... Everything is right here. <laughs> we will come back to, to this back <laughs> later. Uh, I want us to ask you about, because you are the founder of the Festival of Literary Diversity, or FOLD. Tell us a little bit about FOLD and 
how the idea started. Like. Yeah, so the idea for Fold started in 2014. In 2014, there was a festival in the United States that released their lineup, and the lineup was all white, and except for one author. And um, some other authors complained about just the general whiteness of publishing and the general whiteness of like book culture. And there were social media protests and hashtags that were born, and the one that was most popular was We Need Diverse Books. And so all across the United States, people were posting why we need diverse books. And an author in Toronto, Dalton Higgins, wrote a piece about this and about the fact that this is also true in Canada, that there needs to be more diversity in publishing from publishers to editors to agents to literary festivals. And at the time, I was working at a, at a university, and I was sort of contemplating what my future goals were going to be. I was writing. I had written my first book, The Stone Thrower. And I just had bigger questions about what I was supposed to be doing. When I saw that list, I remember thinking, I don't want to be an editor. I don't want to be a publisher. I don't want to be an agent. But a literary festival. And I live in Brampton, Ontario, which is just outside of Toronto. And for suburbs of major cities, there's always this sort of identity crisis and this challenge of getting people to come out to events and spaces. And so it was a combination of wanting to make a difference wanting to change the way publishing was working and providing a space where authors could be centered as authors from marginalized communities rather than be marginalized um, and also wanting to do something in my community that would draw audiences from other parts of Canada. And so the idea for the Festival of Literary Diversity came about. I came up with the idea for the name in the shower. <laughs> I remember that. I was playing around with acronyms and like diversity and literary and I thought, oh, fold would be right. How would I word it so that, and then Festival of Literary Diversity was born. I was very excited. And so that's how it started as an idea to reshape and, and change the way literary festivals programmed to start with marginalized authors and to give marginalized authors the opportunity not just to talk about their marginalization, but to talk about craft. Because what was happening in a lot of festivals where they were a little bit more open or larger and they had a little bit more diversity is oftentimes, and it was happening to me, I was invited onto panels to talk about writing black characters or about um, writing diverse characters or about writing home. Um, as though home was this place I was searching for rather than, you know, having been born and raised in Canada. So I wanted this place where marginalized authors were leading workshops and discussing writing great character and writing great setting. That was really the central part of the philosophy of Fold. The website of the festival states that it's a space for writers to discuss their craft yeah. and the challenges involved in creating stories that asks difficult that sorry that ask difficult questions expose hard truth and push literary boundaries yeah. then how do you teach or these hard like because if you want to go and teach the canon or like you know it's really easy right yeah. you, you know you, there's not much pushback about but if you teach these difficult stories yeah. how do you do that how do you teach these stories or how do how do you teach how to craft them also? yeah it's very difficult to prevent, present stories by authors from marginalized communities to audiences that are not, or that are closed to those concepts. One of the benefits we have at The Fold is because we started out with this approach, our audiences and our authors come wanting those things. They want to hear from authors from the queer community and the trans community and the black community and the Muslim community. But when you've been cultivating an audience that is used to big blockbuster names and 
white authors and these very traditional canon-like authors and conversations, it is very difficult to change the narrative. My mom has a saying that I, I refer to a lot, which is that big ships turn slowly. That's kind of how I feel about publishing, and it's, it's very difficult to get people to approach things in the right way when they've gotten used to doing things in what I believe is the wrong way. Um, so how do I push those conversations? I think for me, it's about uh, presenting the conversations that I think are important. It's about asking a question we ask all the time at Fold, which is who's missing? Who's been missing from the stage at literary festivals? Who's been missing in the audiences of literary festivals? And what do we want to do about it? Um, you know, a community that's missing often from literary festivals is the disabled community. And I think it's because we're very used to excluding disabled folks by um, having stages that are not accessible with a wheelchair or with a walker or by having events in spaces that are not accessible or having bookstores or that have bathrooms that aren't accessible. We've just gotten used to being horrible and excluding disabled folks. And so what I try and do is push in the areas that need to be pushed to strike conversation in the areas that need conversation most. You know, people would say now, there's a lot of black writers and there's a lot of queer writers and there's a lot of this and a lot of that. Like, aren't we doing great now? And my thing is we're, we're doing better, we're paying attention more, but there's always more work to do. And a lot of times what we celebrate in black writers is a particular kind of story, is a particular way of telling stories. You know, are we supporting black writers who are writing thrillers? Are we supporting black writers who are writing uh, romance? And how do we need to push the conversation in various arenas? Kids uh, books is a really easy one to sort of find some major gaps. For a long time, we couldn't find books written by black males, picture books. Then we couldn't find books by disabled Canadians. Still difficult to find that. Um, and then you find out most of the black writers of children's books are writing nonfiction. So how do we continue to have the conversations that are necessary to really diversify publishing across the board? And how can literary festivals like Fold and other festivals across Canada help push that as well and push those conversations and increase awareness of those authors? Absolutely brilliant. Love that. Love that. <laughs> I noticed that on your website, you have a quotation from your other work, The Stone Thrower, mm -hmm. that reads, for most of my life, I felt watery like an ocean, my sense of self disoriented and bottomless, my blackness lost and out of place in a country known for cold winters, we were just talking about Calgary, covered in whiteness. This is important to you, right? That's why you have that on your website. Tell us why. Yeah, that line is from the opening to The Stone Thrower, which is my first book, and it was a memoir, uh, is a memoir, about my dad. My dad is Chuck Healy. He was the first black quarterback to win the Grey Cup. And <clears throat> the interesting part about that quote for me is it came later in the writing of the book. For a long time, I was just navigating my dad's story, mixing in a bit of my own story. And at some point, you know, an editor said, what is the story about? What launches the need to tell this story? And that's when that line really started to formulate for me. And I love the, the element of that, that line that says, uh, lost in a uh, country known for cold winters covered in whiteness. Because there's obviously the play on, yes, it snows here a lot, <laughs> but also there's just a lot of whiteness. <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, sort of, 
I, white supremacy, there's a lot of systemic racism that's entrenched into the way this country was built, into the way this country continues to operate. Um, and I felt that as a kid. I didn't know how to explain it. I, I, I internalized it as something that was wrong with me. Um, but I felt it. I felt the whiteness around me. And I felt myself actually getting sucked into it. I felt myself um, believing things like, oh, there's no racism in Canada. I felt myself um, adopting philosophies about the black community that were racist and problematic, like about my own people, because I actually didn't know a lot of black folks growing up. My parents were both only children. They had both come here from the States and didn't have family and all of the friends that they had built or the majority of them were white. And so um, I, I love my childhood. I love my family friends, but there was a real absence of um, black community around me. <clears throat> and so I, I found myself uh, uh, believing these really problematic things and reading books that where I was entirely excluded. I grew up loving romance novels, um, and I used to go to the Christian bookstore and get these like amazing romance novels. The romance novels were set in the Civil War, uh, in the States, in the South. <laughs> so I'm reading about these like Confederate soldiers falling in love, and these bells and gowns falling in love, and like not realizing how these people that I'm admiring are involved in the oppression of my family, my community, my people. Um, and so as I got older, I started to read more black Canadian literature and I read Lawrence Hill and Dionne Brand and that really helped shape me. But that line from the stone thrower is really quantifying why my journey, really, why that, um, why the writing of my dad's story became really important to me because I think it ended up being not just about figuring out his story, but it's about figuring out my story about my journey to accept myself and understand myself as a black woman in Canada. When you are talking about this, like many names come to my mind, mm -hmm. many of them. Cheryl Fogos and Suzette Myers talking about the influence of, of Cheryl Fogos' novel, Pouring Down Rain, on her and how that affirming that there are other black people in Calgary. Mm -hmm. She's not anomaly, she's not alone. Also, I was thinking of, uh, Again, Cheryl Fogo's uh, uh, documentary, John Ware, uh, reclaimed when she's talking about, like, uh, she's trying to challenge the idea that Canada is a racist-free country. And when, when racism happens to you, you feel like, is it me or it's actually racism? Because Canada's supposed to be racist-free, but this is kind of Then you start to think of, you suspect your own self, like, and your own ideas, like, Am I the only one who that's, because is that the only mistake that happened or these things happened? Then you're hearing those stories from other writers, it's gonna affirm your own experience. And I think that's maybe why it is important for writers and readers, I'm talking about here our students, to read these kind of experiences that are different than theirs. Yeah, there's two sort of, when we look at diversity and literature and at the fold, there's kind of two reasons to really dig deep I think there's one is you want to be able to see yourself in literature. So if you've been marginalized, reading about your own community helps you feel less strange, more quote unquote normal. Um, it helps you to recognize you're not alone. And that's a, a really significant part of uh, a system of racism is the feeling that you're alone, that the feeling that you're having because you are queer or because you're a Muslim or because you are black <clears throat> is an isolated feeling. You're actually just wrong in what you're doing. 
as opposed to understanding that like this system is designed to make you feel wrong and when you find other people in your community you begin to recognize that you are a human first and foremost <laughs> deserving of love and respect and care and protection and all those things um, and I think the other thing is that you read other voices in order to recognize that there is a plethora of, di of, of difference that what makes me different as a black woman is different than what makes a disabled uh, writer different it's different than what makes um, you know a uh, uh, a Sikh writer different, but reading each other's stories helps us understand that like, oh, we are in this, we can be in this together, right? We're probably not in this together and that we're not taking up each other's uh, issues with with any kind of equality, but we, we can, like if we recognize that we're all being excluded in the conversations that are being had as a result of white supremacy, we can actually become more powerful in what we do and we can start to make change. I think if you understand how it feels to be marginalized as a black woman, you can be a better advocate for a queer author, a trans author. So I think that that's for me what reading more diversely is about. It's about making sure people know other authors from their community and that you recognize the range of stories and the range of communities that also need attention, support, advocacy. And that's like when I, teach like about indigenous peoples here mm -hmm. in Turtle Island, it's usually people from different marginalized communities who experienced colonialism in different locations, different geographies, yeah. they would start to make connections. They'd be like, oh, back in my country, right? And that is so empowering. And yeah. to me, I feel like when students start to make those connections, you feel like, yes, that's maybe the point of teaching this yeah. kind of literature. Yeah, and I think it, that's a great point, too, when you talk about indigenous communities in Canada. We have, uh, this country has done horrible things to the indigenous community. There is an active work of genocide to remove indigenous folks from this land. The troubling thing is that that pattern duplicates itself all over the world. You know, you look at African countries, throughout African countries, the same practice was happening. You know, European countries were moving in, pushing out the people who lived on that land, making their lives more difficult, and then taking over government and all these kinds of things that are really, really tragic and terrible. It's a pattern, you know. Um, what we did here was, was a pattern that had been followed for generations across the world. And I think that's a really important way to understand, like, what we learn about the Indigenous community should change how we feel about Canada as a country. It should inform a more thoughtful approach to Canada as a country, but it should also inform our understanding of global politics and how countries are impacted by capitalism and colonialism around the world. Um, and so, yeah, I, that's what books do for me. For me, the, the power of books is that they allow us to navigate hard conversations in our own private spaces through slow, deliberate thought. You know, movies are fast. Music is fast. All these other things you consume very quickly and very rapidly. But a book you labor in for hours and hours and hours. And you labor in it, generally speaking, alone. And that, for me, offers a really important um, difference, a unique difference that can change thinking, right? I remember the first book I read by a trans writer was Little Fish by Casey Platt. And I remember not knowing very much about the trans community and not understanding a lot 
a lot about the everyday lives and the everyday challenges specifically of a trans woman and growing up in a very conservative christian home like my family is very open and kind and all of that but we just didn't we just didn't read we didn't know these things and i remember the 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 way that book changed me chapter by chapter i remember the way i wrestled with things and i thought oh my gosh like make it stop but also like i need to understand this and by make it stop i mean the character was going through really difficult things and i was like please stop <laughs> please stop hurting yourself please stop you know um going through these difficult things but traveling through that story with that character changed me slowly carefully deliberately in a way that other mediums i don't think could okay now i have so many questions <laughs> <laughs> now we teach in academia sometimes we think or people think of us we live in a bubble and the classroom can be a bubble do you think those types of books that are presenting diverse or different uh, narration of history yeah. do you think they make change or do you think we are in a classroom, regardless how radical you are in your views or how radical the texts are. Do you think the classroom can do anything? It's funny, I was interviewing um, Colson Whitehead, who's <laughs> written a bunch of really amazing books, um, and someone from the audience at the end of the event asked him if he thinks his books like change anything. And he, I interestingly said no, he doesn't think his books change anything. It's like a book's a book, you know? And I was sort of taken aback and thinking, like, why do we write if it's not going to change things? Why do we discuss these texts if it doesn't change things? And what I came to conclude from that conversation is that books change people. Does a single book change the world? No. But a single book can change a person who ends up in a prominent role and is changing on a global scale. You know, Barack Obama always releases his books that he reads each year. And I think in his presidency, he would probably argue that a couple of books really shaped how he approaches the world and how he navigated that role. And that's what I like to think about books, that they can change a person and a person can change their world. And sometimes that world is a classroom. Sometimes that's a prof who's read a book and says, like, this is a conversation we need to have. And that changes the people in the room. It changes how the people in the room approach their next Thanksgiving dinner or their next holiday meal with their families, the things they stand up for, the things they stay quiet about. And those things all start to do the work of change. You know, change is just a very long process. It doesn't happen quickly. But each of us takes part, an active part, in either changing things for the better or keeping things the same. And so I think you know, for me, university classrooms were instrumental to how I approach the world now. What I do at Fold is intrinsically connected to what I experienced at the University of Guelph in my uh, African-Canadian literature class, in my Black America class, in my playwriting class. And while I don't think I've like revolutionized the planet, I think in my community I've made a difference. And it's because of the books I read. It's because of the things I, be I came to understand about myself. You know, I've read a ton of books over my lifetime, but I can name, you know, five or six that have radically transformed me. And that's, I think, why we need to keep reading diversely, why we keep, need to keep having those discussions in classrooms, because whether it's the prof or the students in the class and the families they're connected to or the jobs they take on, change is happening. And that's, that's why I write. We need context here when we teach those books, right? Because reading this book, or being 
or having a black friend or having a Muslim friend. <laughs> yeah. That's not an end goal, right? Yeah. So when you read when you read that book, and I think that's where sometimes there is the the lack of understanding how anti-racism work works, <laughs> right? So because some people will be like, oh, I read that book, therefore I I feel great about myself. Yeah. But this process needs to be contextualized in the sense that it's continuous. Like as long as you live, it's with you. It's a living thought. Like it doesn't, you don't stop this work because you read a book or you took a course about anti-racism. Yeah, I think it's an ongoing act of learning and it's ongoing act of change. I think you can read lots of books that don't change you. You can read lots of like fluffy things or (laughs) stories that are just what I would consider to be kind of flat. Um, But I think when you read certain other books, they change you. They change the way you think. And that's, I think, why you have to keep reading, right? If this book didn't change you, why? Um, But I think what's great about university classrooms is that there's someone at the front of the class that's hopefully guiding you into, like, why this one's important. And if a student really doesn't like it, they can have that conversation about why they don't like the book. And that can be really informative. And it's that two-way dialogue that's really unique. You know, when I'm reading a book at home, I don't get that, like, two-way dialogue with another person about a book. And I, I miss that. Um, but I think it's really powerful to pick apart a book. And I also, what I like about classrooms and I like about festivals is that someone is deciding the books that are being discussed. And that's an interesting act in itself. You know, what I think is great is like, this is the, this is the curriculum, this is the syllabus, these are the books we're gonna read. And if I was a student now, I'd be like, why these ones? Why these ones? And what were the books that you wanted to include but couldn't, or took out to include these ones? That is a whole other interesting conversation. Um, because it's about the prof as an individual changing and evolving and um, transforming their space, their learning, their knowledge, and what they're sharing with another generation. I, I would like to move to talk about your novel, but mm-hmm. the conversation keeps going here, like because it's the prof, right? So yeah. it's, and that's where I struggle to think about change because it's usually individual if the prof feels like or if the prof is equipped to yeah. teach those courses but it's not it's not on the system level like it's not at the system level yeah. it's usually the individual trying to do something about it and some professors would like to do that work but they are still individual yeah. within the larger institutions that is white yeah. shall we shift to sure <laughs> great segue to talk about <laughs> yes books I, I would, again, for our listeners, I will just go through the tip of the iceberg because that's <laughs> absolutely very deep and rich novel. So, I'll, uh, and if you are expecting me to explain everything about this novel, I don't think that's going to happen, but <laughs> I will just talk about a few details for the limitations of space and time today. But I encourage all of you listeners to do yourself a favor and read that uh, novel. I'll start with... Mr. Grigors, mm-hmm. he provides a history lesson about the formation of the Qatar system mm-hmm. and the nation, which is, I would think of it as a nation state, calling it an impressive model, mm-hmm. right? As how it's progressive, leading, uh, like economic thrive or all of that, mm-hmm. justifications that he provided. But it is hard for me to read this part of the novel mm-hmm. or the history lessons separate from the Canadian history and the national narrative. Because when I was listening to to Mr. Grigors, I was like, oh, I hear, I, I hear that before. I, <laughs> I see that all the time. I know about this. Yeah. 
tell me about Mr. Gregors and yeah. his history lesson. So um, Gutter Child is a dystopia. Um, it's set in an imagined world where I don't actually define the time frame that is taking place. So some people feel it's future. Um, I guess I could probably say that for me, it kind of operated as an alternate history. And when I was setting it, I was always thinking about the 60s and 70s. That was kind of the time frame I would pull upon when I had to describe, you know, a mug or the car or, you know, a house. Um, and the main premise of the book is that um, Elamina, the main character, has arrived at Livingstone Academy with one scar on her hand and everybody else at the school has two. She's been raised on the mainland by a woman who's passed away, and now she's going to this academy, and she's not quite sure what it is. And what it turns out to be is an academy for gutter children who um, are born in the gutter and are given two scars at birth. And um, she has to figure out why she has one scar and what that means to be at this school. And so Mr. Gregor's, it's interesting when you write a dystopia, one of the biggest challenges is world building. You have to kind of explain the world and define the world, but you don't want to do it in a way that's super boring or, you know, uh, overly descriptive. I really like using dialogue. So Mr. Gregor's, um, who appears in chapter three predominantly, you see him for a bit in chapter one, but he has this big moment in chapter three is the one who does a lot of the like world building explanation and sort of teaching Elamina about the world. And this was really important because Elamina needs to figure out what's happening. And there's only a few people who are going to be able to teach her what's happening or tell her. And of course, Mr. Gregors takes the most prominent largest role and he's a mainlander. I describe all the characters as mainlander or Sosi and Sosi um, either from the gutter or living in a place called the hill. And so there's this conversation about the background between the relationship between the mainland and Sosi people. And what I love about this scene where it's very hard to listen to, it was very difficult to write to, um, is I loved thinking about Mr. Gregors as a good person. I really, it became really important to me, there's a couple of mainland characters that have some prominent presence. It was really important for me in the later editing stages to make sure that the mainlanders um, weren't just obviously bad. They weren't just bad people right off the gate. Mr. Gregors is so excited to have Elamina, and he's so excited to kind of raise her and shape her. She's this one scarred Sosi girl from the gutter, but raised on the mainland. And he's so excited to impart knowledge on her. And he's so confident that what he's doing um, is good. And so that became like, that's this scene. This scene is him kind of unpacking the history of the mainland so that she'll be more informed. Um, and what you find later on when she hears other stories from Sosi characters um, is that of course his version is heavily flawed. And you hear it a little bit even as he's saying it, as you're reading it, you're like, whoa, whoa. Like Sosi people needed to learn from you. Um, you know, Sosi people needed to pay you back for rebelling for their own land what like you sort of hear in what he's saying that something is not right uh, but I also think that there are people who read it and probably don't see that off the bat and it's not until they get the alternate what I believe is the true version of the story from from Ida um, that probably believe that that's a decent way to start a country you know like focus so. on the economy build it you know make it more established quote unquote for 
The Grisons sounds very familiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I feel like some people recognize it as being the problem that created the country we're in, but I think other people very much hear those history lessons and are still learning those history lessons that are being taught in schools and, um, and believe that that's what makes the country great. You know, one of the things that I learned in writing this book is, is the danger of nostalgia. You know, if you talk to anybody about addressing the problems that make Canada a nation, most people will say, but it's a nice place or like talking about changing the anthem. But this is the way the anthem has always been. Talk about changing the flag. But this is who we are. You know, there's this very dangerous obsession with nostalgia and with having things the way they've always been from a certain part of the culture and community. And it, it actually prevents us from having good conversations about what should happen. You know, I believe wholeheartedly our whole election system needs to be radically changed to have a better um, voice for actual people who are living with the consequences of political decisions. But we can't change it because of nostalgia, because of systemic obstacles in terms of changing laws. This is the way things have always been is a really common answer for why we don't make good change and so that's really what mr gregors does in this opening early chapter talking about like this is what makes this country great this is what makes the mainland great is that we fought for what we believed we fought to become this and every soci person will become great by fighting tooth and nail to pay off their debt this is what will make you like a great citizen rather than just saying, hey, how can we be more considerate of people? How can we help those who need helping? It's more like prove yourself. And that is what will make you great. That is what will make the nation great. And a lot of people believe that philosophy still right now, right? Like if you work hard enough, that's, that's what makes you a great citizen is struggling and working. If you come as an immigrant to this nation, why should we give you anything? Just work harder. As opposed to saying, whoa, <laughs> how do we mutually benefit from immigrants coming to this country? What is even wrong with the word? <laughs> like, there's all sorts of things wrong with the word immigrant and immigrating, right? Um, it used to be very fine for Europeans to move all over the world and all over the globe into different countries. But now that they've put their fingers in so many countries, they want to put borders and barriers and obstacles up for everybody else that wants to move around. And so it's like... Let's rethink some of that. With all these barriers in mind, what meanings does the word redemption have? Can get our children gain their redemption or freedom after paying their debt? Or is it really freedom? Is this part of, is this part of the novel is about systemic racism? Yeah. I know. Freedom and redemption are really important themes for me in general and in this book. Um, so in the book, what you discover is that the, the students at Livingstone Academy Elamina and, and her classmates, they have to redeem themselves. They have to pay off their debt in order to be full citizens, in order to be fully free. So they work at the school, they learn a skill, they get hired, and then they, they work at that job until they're old. And then they potentially get the chance to, for freedom. And then they potentially get the chance for freedom for their children. And I think there's a lot of me that grew up believing that sort of philosophy was good, right? We should all have to work hard and prove ourselves and redeem ourselves in the public. Like if you want to be treated well, behave well, right? That kind of, and that's when you get freedom and comforts and all these sorts of things. But um, 
there's lots of obstacles that the kids are up against and that we realize that our people are up against. When we say to people, work hard, it's not the same standard, right? Some people are starting with absolutely nothing. Some people are coming here and being turned away from jobs because they have an accent or because they don't have the credential that you're supposed to have in this country. They only have the one from another country and that's not reliable. Um, and so all those obstacles mean that working hard is not just the standard. The standard is being a certain kind of person with a certain kind of resume. Um, so for me, redemption and freedom become these important questions because it involves um, what does it mean to have to fight for your redemption? What does it mean to have to earn people's respect and people's trust? And then when it comes to freedom, what does freedom really look like? Is freedom working to pay off your debt? Is freedom paying off your debt? Or is freedom something you should have because you are human? Um, and those become questions that, that Eileen has to grapple with. I mean, the central question I was looking at when I was writing Gutter Child was, what happens when you grow up in a world that's designed for your failure? When do you know about it and what do you do about it? And that really is fundamentally rooted in a question of freedom. You know, when do you realize how hard it is to be free, to get free, and what do you do about it? And I think Elamina, and there's four other kind of main, main-ish characters, they all take different approaches to pursuing freedom and to pursuing redemption. And that's what I was really interested in. Well, I'm, I was getting ready to ask you this question. <laughs> what happens when you grow up in a world that is designed for your failure? And is this novel like designed in this way to reflect the lived experiences of those who fail because the system is designed for their failure? And there might be a, a hint of hope at the end, but is that what it's about? Is the system designed for failure? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, an easy example in Canada is like, I think the system in Canada is designed for the failure of Indigenous people. Like, you can see it built into, like, the way laws were built, the way reservations were created, and the way communities were sort of pushed into corners and wiped out, all these sorts of things. You can see that. I, I think. I, hope, I like to think people can. I think in the book, I was trying to figure out what you do about it. What kinds of choices do people make when the system is failing them? And I think there are all kinds of ways that people respond. I think some people respond by like buckling down and working hard and in a way that's very much valued by the larger culture. So you get the good job and you do the right things, you do that. I think other people really struggle under the pressure of it and they often turn to substances, to bad behaviors that are sort of coping mechanisms for the fact that they know the system has failed. And then there are people who really fight to make change. And those are kind of the sort of three extremes and they can play themselves out in different ways. And so I was interested with these five um, students in, in Gutter Child in particular in kind of exploring the different reasons they make the choices that they make and kind of the consequences as well. What happens to them long term because of the choices that they make and I loved writing it as a result. It was lots of fun in that way. And I also was really fascinated with how people responded to each of the characters because 
people would, um, one of the characters, David, is sort of like the very like responsible, good choices, like marches in line. And people hated him. Some people really don't like him. And what's fascinating to me about that is that he's the person that everybody values in real life. He's the one that everyone's like, good job, well done. I mean, he's based on my dad's life and everybody loves my dad. (laughs) You know, there were athletes who were more activists than my dad was growing up, who people kind of push to the side because it makes them uncomfortable. My dad was very, like, peaceful, stayed in his lane, did all the good things. And so it's interesting to write a book where the character that's most loved in real life is is the most resented, and that's a kind of systemic problem I think we have as well. And some of the characters who are the most disruptive, people love. But yet, if they're your neighbor, you're kind of like, hey, can you tone (laughs) it down a little bit? Can you not put that, like, Black Lives Matter flag on your front lawn? Like... That's it, right? And so it's it's really fun as an author to write characters that navigate spaces maybe that you're interested in exploring but haven't explored yourself, right? I was never a big activist. I didn't go to marches and protests <laughs> as a child. I didn't know how that even worked. Um, and so it, it's exciting to create characters that make different choices than you would and to kind of play with how that might unravel. Um, it's probably my favorite thing about writing. Why sometimes, or most of you, didn't refer to the character's race? So, so I didn't refer to the character's race, or I didn't, I, I should say, I didn't label them black, white, etc., etc. And that was a real conscious choice at the time that I don't know if I fully understood why I was doing it. I know that I really wanted to write a dystopia because I wanted to talk about systemic racism and race without kind of the pressures of real racism. So, like... If I were to write about black folks in real time, in real world places, I'd have to pick a place. And as soon as I pick a place, there's certain politics that are very true to that place. If it's America, there's these certain set of rules, certain set of things that have happened. If it's Canada, something else. If it's UK, if it's Nigeria, all kinds of different stories. And if I was exploring like the larger systemic racism, I'd have to deal with the politics of nation what it means to be black in Nigeria, in Brazil, in Jamaica, in the United States. It's really complicated when you're dealing with real life. But a dystopia allowed me to pull away all the things I didn't want to deal with, nation and all of that, and to focus in on sort of the systems that are consistent, no matter if you're in the UK or in um, an African country or a South American country, some of the consistent experiences of black folks in particular, what I was thinking about. And so I was thinking about these things and the dystopia was a dystopia was the best way to like set it and operate it. But then the question became, will I refer to their blackness? Will I refer to their whiteness? And I decided not to. I decided to describe certain characters in in ways that you would assume they were black and assume they were white. But I didn't call them those names. And what I love about that choice that I'm very happy with is I've done a few school visits Um, where students talk about the book and ask questions. And I feel like not using those terms, referring to the characters as Soci or Mainlanders, really allows students to have a much more rich discussion without some of those really hurtful, perhaps, discussions or nervous discussions, right? If you're uh, a a black student and you don't like Mr. Gregors, but one of the white students dies, like I think you can have a much easier conversation about mainlanders and soci people than you can if you start calling them black and white. I think it just frees up a little bit more room. And vice versa. I had a <clears throat> a white student who was talking about Miss Charlotte, who's a really problematic character, and he was just like, she's a horrible person and really felt very strongly about her. And there was another student who was also white 
who didn't feel that that she was that terrible and it was a i felt like they had a much more honest conversation because they were talking about this mainland woman rather than having to talk about this white woman and you know i i feel like that choice was good is it easier to have one scar or two scars <clears throat> in terms of the book is it easier to have one scar or two scars you can answer the way you want so Alameda arrives on campus and has one scar and everybody else has two and a lot of that is a symbolism for me um, there are two main features of the dystopian world and one was the scars and the other was the debt I wanted all of the characters to have or, or some of the characters I guess it ends up being but some of the soci characters to have this physical mark on them at, at the time when I started the books, actually, I didn't know if everybody was going to be black. At a time, I was sort of thinking, maybe they're all different races. All gutter children are, are sort of different races. But I wanted this scar to be this noticeable physical thing that would mark them as a visual reminder of kind of the oppression that they were put under from birth. And then I also wanted the debt. So each of them is born into debt because I wanted them to have different levels of debt and to deal with the fact of what it means to carry around a debt carry around a problem that no one can see that is bigger for some and smaller for others but is in all of them and so there's sort of this physical system and this invisible system um, and so the question of like is it easier to have one scar or two I think there's definite privilege in having one and I think you see right from the beginning Elamina is giving all kinds of privileges as this special student and it's such a unique thing that she's got this scar so it becomes very important in other ways as well but I think it gives her privilege the thing that it doesn't give her is community and so you Elongate. look at it yeah you look at it from two different angles from an angle of like navigating the gutter system and getting out yeah it's an advantage to have one scar it also means she has less debt it means all these other things um, but from a community standpoint, she really doesn't understand the gutter. She doesn't understand soci people, either from the gutter or from the hill. And that makes her isolated in a way that puts her in danger, that causes her to really question herself and have to figure things out in a, in a unique way. And I think those were similar to some of the challenges I faced growing up. I grew up middle class, very um, unaware of the level of privilege that I was navigating as a middle class. I grew up in the suburbs. I thought this was just normal. I didn't realize that like being middle class is a significant privilege. And I grew up away from a lot of the black community. And so like a lot of what Elamine is going through are things that I navigated as well. What does it mean to kind of discover your community and figure yourself out? And what then obligations do you have as a person with more privilege? discovering community and figuring it out what do you need where do you need to listen and where do you need to take action and that becomes a an important question for her it, it becomes it resonates a lot with me because to think of how privileged sometimes you are and how and in relation when we think about our connection with our own communities for being a privileged person yeah. but sometimes you are not really like you're you are the, you are systematically or systemically kind of the system is designed for your failure, but at the same time, you have still some privileges, yeah. right? And that makes your way you think about your own community, your connection to your community is really complicated. And uh, But at the beginning, I think Elamina doesn't see herself as a gutter child, yeah. does she? Yeah. She doesn't see herself as a gutter child, for sure, because she's never, in her memory, lived in the gutter. 
and she's only grown up on the mainland and everyone on her mother, her mainland adopted mother, um, told her that she's not a gutter child. And I think her mother was doing that in, um, trying to be helpful, right? Like you don't carry that same burden. You don't carry those same problems, but the reality is she does. And, and even when she didn't, it was so tenuous. It was so related to her mother caring for her. So that's an important part as well to think about. And it was something that I grew up kind of experiencing and thinking as well. I didn't know if I wanted to be black. I remember wrestling with the term black and whether I wanted to be called black and how I felt when that term was used to describe me. And I think it's because I saw it as a negative. I saw um, black representation in films was often, you know, um, gangbangers and um, like just negative views and negative stereotypes of black folks and the word black in itself I grew up in a very um, Christian home and so in church it was always wash me whiter than snow like Jesus makes you like white and pure and holy and sin is black and evil and so like why would I want that term to be used to describe me if it's used to describe everything bad um, and so it wasn't until I got older, I started using the term African Canadian for a while, but that was tricky because I didn't really feel African and then I didn't know if that term really worked. Um, and so I ended up understanding that all of that confusion is a systemic problem that's kind of like baked in from early on. And, you know, I love being black. I love what I've learned about the black community. Um, my husband is black and from St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And I remember the first time I went to a family gathering and I went into his house and there were probably 50 people in the, in the house and all black. And I was like, what is this? Like, these are all family. Like, I don't understand. I don't understand how many aunts do you have? How many uncles? These are all cousins. Like I, I really didn't understand. And not only did I not understand, not only had I not been immersed in that way very often as a kid, but I hadn't understand understood the range, right? There were people in his family who might be described as low class, lower class in terms of economics, and there were people who were upper class, there were people who were middle class, and they were all like just in there together. And recognizing the beauty and the richness in that room from having different voices and different experiences and different backgrounds and different jobs. You know, there are people who work in transportation and there are people who are entrepreneurs and there are people who are mechanics and just being in a space and seeing range you know back to what we were talking about at the beginning seeing diversity helped me understand what I hadn't seen my whole life and I think Elamina goes through that numerous times in the book where she is suddenly surrounded by other Sosi kids and is like, whoa, whoa, what is this? <laughs> what is happening here? She meets Sosi people who don't have scars and she's like, whoa, whoa, where did you come from? How does this work? And that those moments are really significant and often rooted in, in experiences that I was navigating or had navigated. If I ask you right now to pick something to read for us from yeah. the novel, which which one would you pick? I'll ask I, you later. Why did you pick that one? But <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read from the opening. I love reading the opening. I think when people haven't read a book, it's always great to like get them situated right in the in the opening scene. So I always, I always think the most about my opening scenes, to be honest, because I think that's when people get a sense of the voice of the character of the story, and kind of the world that they're immersing in. So I'll read from the start. Okay, so I'm going to read the preface and then the opening few, few uh, paragraphs from chapter one. When I drew pictures of mother and me, 
I used peach for her and chestnut for myself. Why is your skin named after something soft and sweet and mine is something hard and bitter? Because you are so much tougher, she said. I thought that was a very good answer and maybe it's true, but I am forced to be tough. It takes a particular kind of strength to exist in a world where you are not wanted that doesn't feel like strength at all. Like giving up or giving in would be easier, smarter even. Maybe that is my chestnut, my toughness, the fact that I am still here. Mm -hmm. Chapter one. The driver looks in my direction full of worry. Her lips are red, glossy, and pouted, and there's a crease in her forehead, like she's the one with problems, not me. I stare out the window, wishing I could go back and put my old life back together, which is impossible, I know. So here I am instead, hours away from the only home I've ever known, and driving up a long gravel road through a tunnel of trees with branches that reach down like fingers, hungry for touch. This is Livingstone Academy, Miss Femia says, as we pull up to a grand white house with black shutters and a door that's green like a swamp. The car slows to a stop under a droopy willow, and I step out in what feels like a whole different world. I take one deep breath and close my eyes, and when I open them again, Miss Femia is standing in front of me with her tight bun and waxy mouth. She takes my hands in hers, rubbing my scar with her thumb, the hideous X on the back of my right hand that's ugly and raw. She sighs, and I wonder if it's sadness in her eyes, because it's hard to tell with mainlanders. Pity looks very much the same. I know this wasn't the plan, she says, but let's make the most of it, hey? Her voice is high and hopeful, and I hate the way it sounds. Like forgetting the life I had is my best option. Like that's even possible. I really think you might like it here. I think your mother would have really liked this place, she says. I want to tell her that mother would probably like, what, what mother would probably like is to be living instead of dead, to be back home with me instead of wherever it is she is now. But Miss Femia doesn't have children. And people without children always say, always share silly bits of wisdom, like it will all go to waste if they don't. Yes, let's make the most of it, I say, turning up the corners of my mouth as high as I can manage, which isn't much. You can do this, Alamina, she says, wrapping her fingers around the doorknob, holding the swamp-colored door with her back. You can find happiness here. But happiness isn't something a kid like me can afford to hold out for. Absolutely beautiful. Love it. Thank you. The preface about <coughs> the peach and the chestnut. I don't want to be a chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> right? This is, I remember, <clears throat> I remember my crayon, my pencil crayon set, like, distinctly. I can picture all of the colors in that pencil crayon box. And I remember wanting to find a color that you would color yourself. And there was chestnut and there was a one that was like a tan. I think it was called sand or straw. Like you either colored yourself beige or you colored yourself dark, dark brown. And those two ones had kind of like plain names. But the peach was like the favorite color to color with. And it was the one that all the white kids used to color their skin. And I just felt like I was always mashing together multiple colors <laughs> and crayons. And I actually bought my niece. There's a new set of um, crayons they have, which is like skin color. And it's such a range. So there's like every shade you can imagine in this box. And I love that. But I remember being quite like troubled by it when I was a kid. But in that way, that's like 
you're making a big deal out of nothing, right? There's people who are listening, they're like, I had that pretzel crown set. It's not a big deal. And it isn't, but it is that one of those moments that sort of forms and shapes you. And I think that there's a lot of negativity around dark skin. And the darker skin you are, the more um, difficulty you face in terms of the jobs you get and access and shadism. And, you know, um, people will... We'll talk about that, but it wasn't something that I noticed growing up. And so even when I recognized my own challenges as a black girl, I had to be taught by my friends what it was like for darker skinned black girls. Um, all the things that I faced that I thought were difficulties and obstacles, not feeling beautiful, not feeling like my hair was too frizzy, all these sorts of things. You know, my friends, my black friends who uh, were darker than I were, that had kinkier hair than I did, were going through it like 10 times worse. And I was just so clueless. I was clueless to my own experience and I was clueless to the experience of others. And um, so that's something I, I thought about a lot in the book as well. Absolutely powerful. I thought that was absolutely the preface is just like, <laughs> it's just like so great. Yeah. What are you working on right now? Like, do, you, do you have new projects? Do you have new writing projects? Something you are planning to do in the near future? So this is a bit of a spoiler for anyone who hasn't read Gutter Child yet. Yay. I mean, what are you doing? But okay. <laughs> no, um, but I am working on a sequel for Gutter Child. Um, <clears throat> and it's really fun. Um, it's never fun. Novel writing is a nightmare most of the time, but it's fun to be able to continue a relationship with characters that you kind of, um, that you started out with and that you want to further that experience. Um, and I think there were a lot of things I actually set out in Gutter Child to build a world that was designed for the failure of some and then tear it down. That was kind of the ultimate goal and it didn't happen. Like, I couldn't get there realistically in 350 pages, 400 pages. So this next book is, for me, about continuing some of the questions. Like, what does it take to tear down a system? What are the um, long-term challenges of a system that's designed for the failure of some? Does it just go away? Or, or how does it revisit itself in, in other generations? Um, so that's what I'm, I'm looking at now, I'm thinking about, I'm rather obsessed about. Any time frame, so I can plan another interview. <laughs> I know. <laughs> to be honest, I was supposed to. It was supposed to be two, 2024. Um, I that's unrealistic. I don't think that's going to happen because I've taken on a couple other projects in between. By I want to say by accident, but you don't like sign <laughs> contracts by accident. Uh, but I wrote a children's book called The Hockey Jersey. That was a, a surprise, and then I took on an anthology of middle grade short stories, um, and so those are coming out. Um, the Hockey Jersey came out in 2023, January 2023. The anthology um, has not yet been announced, so I don't even know what I'm talking about here. But <laughs> it is coming at an undisclosed time and location. Uh, but that's coming next. And then Gutter Child sort of, the Gutter Child 2 has been, it's not called Gutter Child 2, I'm just saying that. Um, but it's kind of been delayed as a result of those projects. I think 2025 is a safe bet. I think 2025 for sure. And it seems really far away, but trust me. There's plenty of good books coming out in between that. You'll be very occupied. I can't wait to <laughs> grab uh, Get Our Child too. I mean, again, I'll go with the title that you proposed. Jal, thank you so much for being with us today. That was fantastic. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this conversation between Jael Richardson and Mahmoud Abadni. 
Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stogel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Thank you so much for listening.